0: Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. My name is William. Today with me, I have Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Hey. And today we are going to be talking about the intersection of economic justice and immigration. And to have that conversation, we have our lovely co-worker, Lauren Ubaris. Hi, Lauren.
1: Hi.
0: And we will be talking about domestic violence. We'll be talking about economic justice. We'll be talking about immigration and Please take care of yourself as we navigate this conversation. As with most conversations we have on down the rabbit hole, the conversation might take us in different directions. So please take care of yourself, take a break if you need to, and just join us back whenever you're ready. So, Lauren, first time on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm excited. so
0: excited to have you. Could you do a little intro of yourself? How did you come to TCFE? What brought you to here?
1: You know, it's so funny because I know that you sent me the, <laughs> you sent me these questions. And I'm still like, how did I end up here? I would say that I think like a lot of people who, who work at TCFV, what I do for a living has to be in line with my personal ethics. And so I saw the job posting on LinkedIn. And I was like, yeah, like that sounds, sounds like something that I could do. But <laughs> I also think I came in really green. Whatever I thought domestic violence was, I've been really privileged to learn from some really amazing, like, amazing, like, veterans in the movement, like you and, like, Tracy and, like, Krista and Molly Voiles and everybody on the policy team, right? Everybody who works at t c f e is is a pro. And it's, it's such a great place to just, I feel like I, I don't know, like, I know so much more than I did a year ago. I think that I'll continue to feel that way, though.
0: I think that's really real, especially when, when you join, like, a new organization, a new movement, and, like... You do have people that are, like, such veterans. Like, Krista and Molly have been on the podcast in the past. Just shout out to Krista and Molly. And it's like, I don't know if I'll ever know, like, as as much as they do. And it's crazy.
1: It sometimes feels like, I mean, especially with Krista, who's worked at TCF for, like, 21 years, but who has probably been the movement for, like, even longer. That sometimes she says things to me, and I'm like, I think we're speaking, like, we're speaking two different languages. And I think part of that is just that it's, like, hard for you to imagine, like... How would I say this to somebody who is who is a year into this job? <laughs> but it's yeah, it's been such a like a wonderful opportunity to, to learn so much more, and I can't imagine. It's I think that when I look back on other policy jobs I've had that have been economic justice focused or immigration focused, that I wasn't thinking specifically about survivors blows my mind. Now you know it's changed me for the better. I think. <laughs>
0: I mean, I think that perspective is great. Like Tracy, maybe you have some thoughts on this too, but when I look back as like, I mean, I've been doing DV work for 10 years. When I look back at the beginning of my DV career, like the things that I was like, I was not a great advocate like when I started, like with some of the stuff that we, just even like the policies and stuff that we had in place, like were super like rules heavy and they were like, and I was just like, when I look back on things, I'm like, ooh, like hindsight is hard. Because you see how maybe you weren't centering survivors, even when you were working directly with them, or like, yeah,
2: yeah, I think, yeah, exactly. And I think I think the same thing. Working in direct services, especially, and how. How clients and survivors were were treated by agencies I've been involved with and myself, just not really having the the history or the educational pieces and the experience yet. I think back to things that I would love to have done differently all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah. I and some of it's just like the movement has also changed in the past, you know, decades as we've as we've learned and grown and, you know, new terms have been you know, trauma informed wasn't really that big of a turn. Like I mean I mean I guess it maybe existed, but
2: anyway there was some
1: talking about it that it wasn't like the standard. <laughs>
2: yeah. You know, there was a big focus on on what safety was and what it meant and the people implementing it weren't necessarily listening to all the voices in the room all the time. And I think there's been a big shift in that way, which has been great to see.
0: And probably even like economic justice, since we're talking about that today, like even that concept has shifted a lot over time.
1: I think that like, if I, I mean, if I had to guess, maybe not TCFV, but if I had to think like 15 years ago, like I would think that it wouldn't have been called economic justice, right? Like, I think that I would have had like a like, I would have been some like finance lady who was like, I'm going to help you budget your way out of abuse.
2: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Terrible. (laughs) There's like less barriers now too, which I think back, you know, 15 years ago, there was like so much you had to prove in order to like earn these specific resources or help, whether that was financial or otherwise. And now I see those barriers being removed, which is great. And there's still a lot of work to do, obviously. (laughs) And thinking of traditions yes. and the way things have been and the way things are moving and the directions they're going, I think I can move us into our icebreaker now. Such a good segue.
1: That was so, <laughs> so impressive! Wow.
2: <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, I think we're we're talking about you know New Year, the New Year going into it, and resolutions, what that looks like, and also traditions. And we talk a lot about food on this podcast. We have a lot of strong opinions about food. <laughs> And we were talking about some things that we eat, whether that's within our family or friend groups or traditions in that way around the New Year's. What are your New Year's food traditions?
1: I think, I mean, my mom grew up in the United States. And so she used to make black eyed peas and ham. I think that's like very, like very southern US, maybe. <laughs> Puerto Rico has like Christmas doesn't really end until January 6th when we have like Three Kings Day. And that's like actually when you give people gifts. So we still like all through, like our Christmas food carries over into into the next year. So coquito. And that's like, you know, it's something that you drink. <laughs> it's coconutty it's rummy it's really good then pastel to me like i I really think of that as like a puerto rican food it's like a i don't want to call it at the mall because i think that that really like you know i think it's important to find those like those connections like intercultural connections but but it's not quite at the mall it's only you know it comes wrapped in a banana leaf right but it's, it's made from like ground plantain and like like a dough is, made, is like made from ground up plantain. And then what's inside is like garbanzo beans and like pieces of pork and like little pimentos. It's really, it's, a, it's my favorite holiday food. And when I see them out in the wild, like I was just visiting my dad in Miami and we went to like a, a restaurant that just happened to have them. And I was like, I'm going to take both of these pastellas that you have, please. <laughs> <laughs> But I really think of that as like a like an end of the year, like New Year holiday food to me.
2: (laughs) You And this is because I'm curious. Have you been able to find that anywhere around the Austin area?
1: No, there's not a lot. There's a Puerto Rican cultural center here and I never go to their, I never go to their activities, but I should. Like I, f- I started following them on Facebook as soon as I moved here because I was like, I'm going to be that person. I'm getting like bomba dance with all these old people. and like, <laughs> It's going to be, I'm going to be so Puerto Rican and I've just never gone. I bet that they probably do have like holiday events and somebody rings pasteles, but not like not at a restaurant or like at a store. Like if I wanted to get them, I would have to go probably back to Colleen, which is like forty-five minutes north of here. And there's a really good Puerto Rican store that you can get pasteles from. And they also have like a little like like a deli counter. It's not like not like quite a deli, but like, you know, like some, like like a you get a tray and then you're like, I want this and that and that. They give you like Thank three you. They have like a, a really good little like prepared food section. <laughs> I grew up in Colleen, that's how I know that, that that's there. A lot of Puerto Ricans in Colleen, Texas. <laughs>
2: william what about you
0: growing up in the south like we definitely did black eyed peas i don't think we do this anymore but depending on who in my family you talk to like you have to put a penny in it in the pot of black eyed peas and it's supposed to like bring you health and wealth yeah and i'm not positive that we do that anymore maybe it's like the cleanliness of change that we're concerned about i'm not really sure but I know that that has happened, depending on who in my family is making said Black Eyed Peas.
1: Do they leave the penny for someone to find? Like, is it like, oh, and you found the penny. Like, you're going to make the most money this year.
2: Or like in king cake? Or... Yeah,
0: like the baby in the king cake. I don't think so. I don't think that it's ever, at least not in my memory. I don't think it's ever been like, oh, you found the penny. Don't choke. Like, I don't think, you know, it's ever been that. But, but yeah, I think that that's one of the the biggest ones and then and then there's like I guess it's not always been a champagne toast but you used to really go hard on the like Welch's sparkling grape juice in both red and white flavored because fancy like that also I just saw the other day I was in a Walmart for some reason and saw that they have like individual little six packs of those Welch's grape juices now like you don't have to get the big bottle and so I was very curious about it but anyway so those were definitely like a very new year's you know even like well into adulthood like the. The Welch's grape juice, like sparkling grape juice was very present at my New Year's gatherings because it was the only time of the year that I, I guess I grew up thinking it was like a seasonal thing. I don't even know actually now that I'm thinking about it. And can you get that? all year round? Maybe. I just assumed it was like the Little Debbie Christmas cakes where it just comes out at New Year's, I think, because we didn't have it any other time of year. It was only the New Year's drink. So
2: I'm so excited when I see the little mini Little Debbie Christmas trees at H-E-B pop out. And I'm like, yes, it's time.
0: Just ordered some in my H-E-B order. They'll be here today.
1: (laughs) That's how I feel about like Frankenberry, like Count Chocula, like the seasonal cereal (laughs) I'm like, oh, my God, it's the best time
2: of the year. Like, Yeah. Well, we didn't do, like, we never did the sparkling grape juice, but we had grapes. Like, there were, and I don't remember the specific number, but we ate grapes for good luck going into the new year. And we also had, of course, black-eyed peas. And we also had to have cabbage. It was a very important Black eyed peas and cabbage was your dinner and grapes were essentially your dessert. And my mother still to this day will text me mercilessly on New Year's Day to make sure I've had at least the black eyed peas and cabbage. <laughs> Aw, that's really sweet. But yeah. I don't know where the grapes come from in our family. I'm not sure. Isn't it like a Spanish tradition?
1: Like I feel like the people or... who do that are like from Latin America.
2: Yeah. They're- Makes more sense to me. My sister is Hispanic. like (laughs) Argentine, maybe. I was trying to think of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Growing up, black eyed peas were not my thing. But my mom would be like, you have to eat one. Like, you have to at least eat one.
2: Yeah, it's like you have to have a spoonful. Like, yes. Bar.
0: I think it became this negotiation of like, you can have a spoonful, or I can have like, is one pea, does it count as a spoonful? So, but we did it. So,
1: have your feelings about black eyed peas changed? They
0: have mostly, though, because I think we make them differently, like, put more stuff in them. It's not just like peas out of a can there's like a ham hock and there's like jalapeno and there's like more of a hop and john situation and less of a black eyed peas situation
2: wait what is what is hop and john
0: (laughs) hop and john is like this term it's i don't want to say it's fancy black eyed peas but it's like black eyed peas with like other stuff in it i don't know if that stuff is specific but i know it's like ham hock and it's like i think some people put some like peppers or like Onions and stuff. I think some people put some sort of, like, relish-type deal in it. But, yeah, it's just... <laughs> <don't know>. Like... <laughs> it's a black-eyed
2: piece. That sounds- it's just,
0: like, yeah, dressed-up black-eyed peas, maybe, like...
1: Hoppin' John. I
0: love that. Yeah. So.
1: Is it, like, is it, are other things Hoppin' Johns, or is it just Black Eyed Peas?
0: I've only he- ever heard it described as Black Eyed Peas, or, like, Black Eyed Peas with, with ham or some other pork in it.
1: Like, make beans? Like, if this is beans with, like, ham hock, is it always Hoppin' John, or is it
0: just... I think, in my experience, I don't want to discount anybody else's experience, it okay. is just Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> but maybe we'll I learn something request
2: new. that you ask your mother about this. <laughs> Okay. I'm All so
0: right. curious now. i lost <laughs> my mom and my grandmother.
1: <laughs> oh. I really uh, love That's great.
0: Yeah. So it is the new year. And I think that with the new year comes a lot of hopes and dreams and like resolutions. And often a lot of those things have to do with money and how we navigate our own personal economic. And often for other folks, it's just a time for change and a time for renewal. And I think we're going to bring in a lot of those themes into this conversation today. So we have had one episode on economic justice before. So people can also look back to that episode. It was like a year and a half ago. But for the people at home, Lauren, could you tell us what economic justice is or what it means?
1: I think that you know I got to in this last year be a part of this learning collective that was put on by the Center for Survivor Agency and Justice. We're the last person that you guys talked to about economic justice works now. Moramuro. And one of the first conversations that we had was about thriving. Like, what does it mean not to just, like, have enough money to pay your bills and to like, to like, carve out an existence paycheck to paycheck, but to really be comfortable. And that is, to me, like, when I when I think of, like, what the goal is that, like, we all are comfortable however however we get there. (laughs) And so when I'm thinking about economic justice, I am thinking about what it means for like all of our work to be viewed as work that has dignity and what it means for us to be compensated fairly for our labor and for our time and what it means to have access to like the benefits that we need. But I think there are a lot of things that kind of go into to the idea of economic justice, but I'm I'm thinking about the idea of of thriving, right? Like toward that goal of of thriving. What do we need to thrive?
0: Yeah. And I mean maybe it's a little bit obvious But why is it important to the domestic violence movement or to domestic violence survivors?
1: So there's a lot of research that says that people stay in their relationships. Like a big motivator for people to stay in relationships that aren't healthy or safe is that they can't financially afford to like move on. You know, you're if you're in a living situation where you're dependent on like the other person's wage, leaving that relationship might. I mean, it it would definitely put you... In like a state of like uncertainty, right? Like financial uncertainty. But I think also a lot of survivors find themselves in situations where they're not in control of the financial situation in their home, Wh- whatever that looks like. Whether they're in a partnership with someone who wants to like be in charge of paying the bills, or her, someone who's asked them to stop working, or someone who's made it, you know, someone who's come to their job so much and caused such a ruckus that they, that they lost their job. Right. That all those are, p- are part of the the economic reality of a lot of survivors, and it's it's something out. Outrageous. Like I've seen different studies that are like every three out of four survivors deal with this. But I've also seen people who say like it's like up in the up closer to like the 90th percentile of survivors are dealing with like this like financial insecurity as a as a reason they stay in their relationships, the reason that they return back to those relationships even after trying to leave. And so being able to again like get on your get on your feet financially, but also like you know, (laughs) I don't want to sound corny coming back to this, but also to be able to like have a wage where you're thriving. (laughs) is really important. Nobody's paying me to be like thriving wage. So I just, that's not like, (laughs) it's just an idea that I really like.
0: And I think it's super important, right? Like I think that, that it's it's a super important context, especially in this like <sighs> capitalistic world we live in, where you know it's a, it's a bootstraps kind of
2: yes vibes I, mean. I, I think of you know a lot of survivors too it's it's not just the instability like you could have a survivor who is making a decent wage and has that employment, but their credit's been absolutely obliterated. Or yeah. in history, or they might have an eviction for something that was beyond their control because of the abusive situation. So I think of that too, and it's so invasive to so many different parts of, of thriving.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, Tracy, that's a huge, huge issue: is course debt, right? That I think that you were alluding to that, like, yeah, can be. And Angela Litwin at UT Law, I think, is wrapping up looking at some of the, some data that she's collected right now on a study on coerced debt, and it's like so many of the people who go and contest those debts are people that you'd be like, oh, like this person can financially weather this sort of thing. But when you look at like the debts, like it'll be like, oh, like this person, their partner bought a boat on a, on a credit card. Like, you know, the kind, like we all get those like crappy credit card offers in the mail, (laughs) but sometimes your partner will like take out a handful of credit cards and go, go max them out buying a boat. And you find out when it's gone into collections or... Or that sort of thing, or I think even, you know, somebody will borrow your car and then like rack up tickets and not tell you or like rack up toll charges and not tell you. And you find out when when you're getting like a letter from the state that you haven't paid your toll tag or when like there's a warrant for your arrest that you actually have all these tickets. There are so many ways that you could be in a financially precarious situation, even if you would otherwise be in like the upper middle classes, right? (laughs) But I think that too is like a very like, I don't know, it really feels like in the United States, like we've done such a good job of like commodifying every piece of like every every moment that you're alive. There's like somebody who's like, and for this moment that you breathe this air in the dark, that's $18, right?
0: For sure. And and I think that people were are just so immersed in the system that works like that, right? Where where everything is commodified. And so it's just like, well, of course, you when you're married, you take on each other's debts. Or like when people don't think about that like coercion that can happen, whether whether they're married or not, right?
1: Yeah. Even like, you know, like insurance, you can be somebody who's doing financially well. And like if you get sick. <laughs> even if you have insurance like i don't know we work at a place where we're like fortunate to have dental insurance but i had to have like a root canal this year and it was like like, was the, like the dentist just like again we were talking about like plumbing right before we started recording but the dentist just thought i had like 1400 dollars that day and i was like that is so funny i'm gonna have to come back i'm gonna have to like put this on the
0: shelf yeah
1: and just like if you have like a serious enough problem like that can also put you into financial precarity in this country because like we live on like this you know Like insurance-based system, like even the insurance isn't like (laughs) doesn't necessarily cover like what you what you would what you would hope it would
0: cover. We can talk about the insurance scam at a different time because (laughs) that is a soapbox that I'm willing to get on. I'm glad you said that because I was about
2: to start and I was like, let me pull it back. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I think I don't remember the exact statistic, but in conversations about like taxes and why people are often quote unquote fiscally conservative, not to take this conversation in a political direction, but this this is actually like going somewhere. But thinking about the, like, American dream, right, and this this idea that you can, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can, like, achieve, the, like, massive s- successes, and that's, like, a great hope and dream to have. And so many more people are closer to homel- homelessness than they are to being a millionaire. Like, like, one of those purchases, you had to get a root canal, and now you owe $1,400, and, like, what are you to do? Live with mouth pain or deplete your savings account, right, or... You know, and there's there's all of those people. And again, now, like all the soapboxes are happening. And there's all those people that are like, well, millennials just should stop eating avocado toast. And it's like, can we not? Or they're blaming it on Starbucks and like, well, if you didn't have your five dollar coffee or however much cup of coffee at Starbucks costs, that is not the problem. Right. It's a, it's a larger problem about economics and about other systems that are at play. Yeah. And then you layer domestic violence on top of that and coercion and financial manipulation. And it makes sense when you really think about it when someone stays with their abuser out of necessity or goes back to their abuser or some level of financial stability as opposed to being homeless. And then you throw kids into the mix and kids are expensive. But also you need those aspects of stability as well, unless you... not unless, but there's also a risk of being system involved if you don't have this economic yes. stability for children. Like.
2: Well, then you think of the additional costs if you if you did move forward and leaving the relationship, especially if you have children involved and you're looking at getting the court involved and attorneys, and it's a whole vicious spiral that just further affects survivors and those that are most vulnerable and can't afford to work these systems.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think if the choice is, like, will I stay in this home with the person who I the, you know, the, the, my children's other parent who I love or, <laughs> or like I, I become homeless, right? Like I'm like, That's, it doesn't, <laughs> it's a very like easy to make choice. I think even if you factor in not always feeling safe. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, really, though, like, I think that I think that people who haven't experienced domestic violence or haven't worked in domestic violence spaces with survivors, like often put the violence as like the worst thing. And certainly, I don't want to minimize the violence or the harm that happens, right? Yes. But you think about all those other things about like being homeless and hungry, being otherwise system involved in other ways, whether it's with law enforcement or with CPS Mm -hmm. or like
1: immigration. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Great transition. Yeah. So you think about all these other things and it's like, again, not to say that it's not to minimize the violence, but like there is there is more than just that happening, impacting someone's life. And I think that that is a great transition to to talk about the vulnerabilities that immigrant survivors face and particularly how economic justice or economic abuse play into immigrant survivors' lives and how they navigate abusive situations and seeking resources.
1: I think that we've all... I mean, like, I think that... We- What's so great is that we've already done such a good job of talking about like, if you are a citizen of the United States who lives in Texas, who has like a salary. Job, right? Like we're talking about like the difficulties, like the three of us, like the financial difficulties the three of us have scaling some of these costs, or like dealing with insurance, or all of these kind of things are like the everyday problems of a person who like still has a lot of privilege in this country. But if you layer on top of it, like access, if you are a immigrant survivor in the United States who is like not here on a visa, that even trying to get trying to get insurance or like Like you might be dependent on your partner for all kinds of different things, particularly when if your partner is like a a citizen themselves, right? But you know, yeah, like if you're here without a visa, you're not supposed to work. And so I think that that opens people up to be like either earning under the table and like risk being in trouble in, in that sort of way, like in a in a justice involved sort of way. More to be dependent on someone who is working, who then has that ability to to hold the fact that you're dependent on them over you, right? Like you you layer on top of it the fact that like this country doesn't want to spend money on on its own citizens, and it's definitely not trying to spend money on on immigrants, and so all the all the complexity of trying to, like, get help. Like, it just becomes so much more challenging.
0: Yeah, and I would say even, even immigrant survivors who do have documents... Yes. ...because yeah. of all of the attacks on undocumented folks and the profiling that happens and the, just the fear around being an immigrant in this country, particularly, right. like, if you are Black or brown, like... So even if you do have documents, like, there's a fear of police, there's a fear of discrimination, There's a fear of racism, like xenophobia, like there's all of these things. And so on top of documentation, like what is your English proficiency and how does that impact your economics?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think... Like there is not, we think, oh my God. The amount of times I, I hear people say like, I don't have a problem with immigrants. I have a problem with people who like come in illegally, right? And I'm, I don't want to like, I don't necessarily believe in that idea of like, oh, like there's like, there's one right way to get to, to get into the United States. And, like you should you should always do it this way. I don't believe in that. But even for like the sake of just being like, when people say that, like there are so many different kinds of visas that like don't ever allow you to ever leave the United States while you're on that visa. Or you have this visa for as long as you were employed at this place and if there's like mass layoffs or (laughs) if this business, like if this, you know, we live in Austin where like every other person works at a startup. Like if your startup crumbles or something, you lose your visa. Like you have a very specific amount of time to get another job or leave. There are so many ways that you can be here quote unquote legally and still kind of be in like a precarious situation.
2: Almost always being in an uncertain, like an uncertain level and in limbo because it feels like things are stable. They can be just like pulled out from under you, not to mention the process to even get a visa. Right.
0: And then, yeah, then there's if you're a survivor and you're navigating immigration as well as abuse, thinking about your access. There's a lot of fear about accessing domestic violence services because people don't know how they'll be treated or if they will be accepted into shelter or a non-residential program.
2: Or even language access if anyone is able to talk to them or understand them or if they have somebody that, that can. And
0: Futures Without Violence had a video a while ago about it was a series of videos but it was really about like racism in the movement and they talked about language access in programs and how often programs will bring in an interpreter for like your, your intake or for your case management meetings but that's kind of So you miss out on a lot of the like community living meetings and uh, just the connection in shelter to other survivors and the community building that happens just like in the kitchen or in the hallway. And so not feeling welcome or safe in a place that you already don't really want to be. And then you think about, yeah, jobs and employment access and even just the money that goes into applying to visa or for visas or citizenship. You have to have money to do all of these things because, again, everything is commodity modified
1: yeah child like if you're gonna get a protective order child care when you're going to court <laughs> it's yeah. So there's so many barriers, I think, for, like, for somebody, again, for someone who is a citizen, already so many barriers, but to not be a citizen of this country and to be, like, trying to go And I think, as, you know, again, like, when you were talking about, like, being able to build a network within, within shelters and the challenge that might be posed to somebody who's not, like, super comfortable in English, I think that, too, like, you're thinking about, like, how, like, protective, like, our friends and families are her, what they can offer us when we're when we're in abusive relationships. And I just can't imagine what it would feel like to like live in a country where like your family isn't close by, right? <laughs> or like your best friend isn't close by and try to, to navigate that.
2: Yeah. Or even if you built that community where you are now or, or you know, someone an immigrant has come here and has, has formed some connections and has made that space when you're talking about of uh, violent relationship or if they go to shelter, even if they receive non-residential services, it's often not close to home. Uh, so if someone does go into shelter, they're leaving that bit of community they do have. And so it's it's very isolating, I have seen and would imagine. And yeah, there's just so many barriers in place. And it's already when you talk about economic justice and financial stability for survivors who aren't immigrants and don't have that extra layer on top, you think of the organizations that are there, the community partners that are there to help and how overburdened they are as well financially. And so that that resource is often has a long wait list or it's just not available or there's just so many barriers. And so my mind goes back to that too.
1: I feel like I'm having 10 thoughts at once. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think our our program staff do such a good job, right? Um, but I think that one thing that that's true also is that like we make it seem if you leave, then you can like you go to the shelter and somebody will give you a bed and like a place to. And I'm like, that's not true. <laughs> like, we don't have enough beds in shelters for everybody who like would like to leave their, their abusive relationship right that's a problem I, w- I would assume it's not just a texas problem but i know it's certainly a problem that we have in texas <laughs> and i like sometimes we'll hear people be like well there's housing for survivors i'm like what are you talking about like what- where <laughs> yeah <laughs> Like, there's, I don't know. I'm sure that, like, everybody hears this, like, you should just leave, right? And it's like, to where? What are you actually suggesting someone do? Live out of their car? It's really, it's really frustrating. I feel like I'm not necessarily saying constructive, but it's really.
0: It's just no, no, no. I think it's it's all of these misconceptions about like what services are available for survivors and for immigrant survivors in particular. They're like, well, they'll just like come over and get a free <laughs> right back. And it's like the turnover rate in Texas from shelter is massive. It's massive. And like certainly that that's in Texas, but it's across the country, right? And yeah, like what what are you talking about? And and also when you think about services that are available, yes, family violence services are available to someone regardless of their immigration status, regardless of their their the language that they speak and the service has to be available. Like, right. So to your your point, like our programs across Texas, across the country work so hard to serve survivors and there are capacity limits, both like spatial capacity limits. Like there's only a certain number of beds in each program, but also one case manager can only do so many things. Right. And and, in so many programs, they're already like working above the capacity of like, you know, a normal person. And so it's definitely a misconception that people have about domestic violence services that they're just like ubiquitous.
1: Yeah, they're just waiting for you to like come and like, there'll be this like warm, 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 wonderful place like waiting to take you in when you're ready to leave your partner.
0: Or that you can just leave and then people don't think about those next steps that we talked about earlier, right? Like, well, you've got to find transportation to leave to move all of your stuff. Yeah. Or you can somehow replace all of your stuff if you just leave it. Or you don't have to have first month's rent, last month's rent, and like a security deposit to get an apartment.
1: It's also like, you know, I, I bet that you guys say this all the time on this podcast like that's like when you are making your plans to leave is the most dangerous time (laughs) in a relationship that might already have like elements of physical abuse right (laughs) and so it's like you know I just think it's so short-sighted and people say stuff like that (laughs) I mean it's it's obvious it's very short-sighted when somebody suggests like just leave they don't really understand like the (laughs) all that that takes and (laughs) <laughs> all
0: the and, the and the danger involved
1: yeah.
2: exactly and sometimes it's just not possible like it's just not not the option
0: and bringing it back around to immigrant survivors like even documented immigrants yes if your abuser is holding your documents
1: yes you know, that's a real thing that happens to a lot of people who, who get, who do have some sort of like legitimate, you know, quote unquote, legitimate like status to be here is that their abuser will be like, let me like, let me put these away for you. Like, let me keep them somewhere safe. And then it's like a thing that, like, you know, a place that you don't have access to, right? Like a, like a lockbox or like a secret file somewhere, something that you don't have access to. And a especially in a place like Texas that's really hostile to immigrants in particular. I, you know, yeah, that's the real thing. I was just thinking about like, you know, we are, I I, I don't know what's going to happen because I expected this bill to be signed already. We had, you know, woo. At the time that we're recording this, we are in our fourth special session. <laughs> the, the session ended in May. The governor can call a special session for like a month at a time. He's now called four. And one of the things that he's continued to like call the session back for has been immigration. They Texas is looking for kind of like avenues to start its own state level like immigration enforcement right it would, that would go like above you know right now the way that and like I assume that even this bill does get signed that there will be challenges right away to it right now like immigration law is a is a you know a federal question right The people who can detain you for being an immigrant, the people who can deport you, all of that is supposed to happen within this, like, federal system. And Texas is trying to, like, go above this federal system and make it so that, like, any peace officer, super broad, so, you know, like, campus police or (laughs) security guards at the mall, like, those kind of people, if they suspect that you've entered the state illegally from a place that's not, like, like, a real port of entry, right, that that's, like, grounds to be, like, detained and, like, that's grounds for arrest. Like it creates like a new, a new criminal charge of trespass, of criminal trespass, of criminal or, or of entering illegally excuse me criminal trespasses operation Lone star sorry but of entering illegally becomes like a criminal offense and then that person if they wanted to like this is a real thing like if you if you think about it to, like it's like what's the craziest worst thing that could happen that like you could be at the mall speaking you know speaking a different language and if you can't prove up in that moment to somebody that you are here again quote unquote legitimately but that person if they were like a mall cop or a campus security guard or an off-duty police officer could like put you in their car and like drive you to the border and tell you to to cross back into Mexico right and if you don't do that then that becomes like a like a second degree felony like refusing to <laughs> refusing to cross back into mexico so i just like i say that not to be like you know i mean obviously i think there, there are really big issues with with that bill that go beyond like anything that we could talk about in the time that we have left today but i think if that bill is signed and it, it went up in front of the governor on november 27th and hasn't been signed yet but if that bill is signed i think that that all kind of like issue of somebody holding your documentation hostage becomes like even more
2: grave. Well, especially Lauren, when you, when you mention they suspect, it sounds um, so very broad, like what makes them suspect this, that this is a thing. And you mentioned, you know, the example of someone being in the mall and speaking a different language, that's enough to, to have them. Well, there's supposed, supposed to be,
1: there's supposed to be probable cause, right? And so the legislators who are for this bill have been like, you know, you're not supposed to be able to just like stop somebody willy nilly who's minding their business. Business. Like, if you didn't see them in the act of, of illegally entering, then you shouldn't be able to, like, stop them. I'm like, when we really consider what this bill is going to do, I don't think it's outlandish to suggest that normal people minding their business, having, like, a completely ordinary day, are probably going to be, you know, targeted for... Arrassed. Deeper. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: But the language in the bill doesn't say that, right? doesn't say, like, you have to actively see them crossing... No. ...outside of a port of entry... <laughs> <laughs> right. So like anybody that makes a traffic stop anywhere in the state. Right. Even the like Oklahoma border far, far away from the Mexico border could have this power. Right. To enforce
1: the, bill. the, the bill's author and like the people who have like voted in favor of it have said that realistically we should only be able to see like this bill be enforced at the border. But it's written so broadly. And one of the things that, like, different legislators, probably different programs, I think TCFV and TAP, lots of folks were involved in trying to get amendments to this bill that would, it would say that, like, someone can still seek help at a shelter, right? Because that's, I think that becomes a problem that, like, if you're at the doctor, for example, and you, like, admit to the doctor, that, like, oh, you know, like, we crossed on foot from Latin America into Texas, however long ago, and whatever brought you to the hospital that day, that that could be, like, a situation where doctors... doctors... Doctors aren't supposed to like deny you services based on your immigration status or anything like that. And they're not supposed to be able to share your immigration status with like a cop on the scene or anything. But I, I just think that like we're not prepared for all the different ways that this bill could be enforced and could be disastrous. And I'm like in that they won't carve out exceptions for places like shelters. I think again we know that sexual assault is like a real issue for lots of people who are who are making that trip. It's a hard trip to make. And so like if someone who and there's there are visas particular for people who are like survivors of crime and survivors of sexual assault and trafficking and abuse, right? But I think that like it makes it scary for for someone who has survived something like that to go and like get help and not not know if they're in a border town and they go and like try to get help for sexual assault or try to like be seen for like different men- issues relating to any of that stuff, like, oh, are they going to be safe? Or are they going to be at risk of of being deported? And I, I can't see why if the goal is like, this bill would be like narrowly enforced. I can't see why you wouldn't want to have amendments in the bill to be like, and in particular, we want to make sure that people who are trying to get help are going to be safe. So that like all of these, all these amendments were kind of shot down to me as like, you know, you're saying that you're looking for this really narrow enforcement, but (laughs) It doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem that way, right?
0: Yeah. And so so the bill right now operating under SB4. And so the stuff that we've talked about also, mm-hmm. there are like new penalties for people like transporting someone.
1: Yes. That's actually a different bill. Bill has like, again, it's had different names throughout its life. But that's right now House Bill 4. <laughs> That that creates like, well, it doesn't change our definition of trafficking, but it does increase like the, the minimum penalties for trafficking. So it's like right now, an affirmative defense of trafficking is like, I'm actually related to this person who's in the car with me. So they they might arrest you or something, but at your court day, you'd be like, you can't convict me of trafficking because this person I was in the car with is actually like my spouse or my child or whatever, right? So this one's like, you can be within like the third degree of of being related to somebody and that would be an affirmative defense. But otherwise, you could have like a minimum of two years up to like a maximum of 10. It kind of takes it to like the minimum would be 10 years for somebody Mm -hmm. uh, convicted of trafficking. And again, people are saying like this. It doesn't change. Like, what is the definition of trafficking? But I, I do think that there are enough immigrants' rights groups who are going like our, our definition of trafficking seems pretty broad. And if you're making exceptions only for people who are like within the third degree of relation to somebody, then that also, to me, suggests that you you might want to like interpret the <laughs> interpret the implementation of this law in a, in a very broad way. If it becomes a
2: if it becomes a law. Yeah, I mean, because just like, thinking. Of... Oh, I was just going to say because that even affects like your ability to like if your neighbor asks you for a ride or you yeah. know or somebody at the grocery store is struggling and they need a ride or you know whatever the right. case may be. That's, thinking about.
1: No no that's something that people different immigrants rights groups have been like there's for people who, who don't drive right that like it's not uncommon for for your church to have like a bus you know for people who are like for religious buses might come and get you for church service on Sunday right And it's like okay so like are we saying that like this like 70 year old man who drives his Catholic his local Catholic churches bust, like the homes of, of different parishioners, is this person at risk of being called a trafficker?
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. And that's, I was going to say the same thing about domestic violence programs. Yeah. A lot of times there's an agency van and you take somebody to the doctor's appointment or to the pharmacy or the grocery store or wherever to their, to their new house. Like, and so now Are DV shelter staff at risk. Like, you know, it's just this, this like fear place. And like, I'm so...
1: I think that's actually the goal, right? I don't want to, I could get in trouble, I guess. I'm not sure. (laughs) But I do think that there is kind of like a sense of like, oh, like we want people to be a little bit more like afraid, right? (laughs) Afraid, like if afraid to like, you know, definitely that they feel that passing these sort of bills acts as deterrence for people who, who would come into the United States without going through like a formal immigration process right that these bills are like meant to deter but i think that on the other side of it it also makes people feel afraid that like oh like in the in the regular kind of things that i would do as a neighbor or in my in my job like what risks am i running and i yeah i, I can't help but really believe that
2: it's almost like a groundwork of tension. like it's just laying that like yes the intention and and like you said like fear you know like i want to help this person but i'm scared that i could get in trouble for helping this person because i don't know their status and, and right then, yeah yeah. It, it makes me think a lot of, you know, people's own, their own values that they hold and how that just leads to more discontent. And I don't want to say depression, but just like a, I don't know the right word, y'all, but like a moral sadness. <laughs>
1: yeah. Despair, right? like
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think also
0: kind of turning from that despair, right, and thinking about immigrant survivors, there often is a lot of community and resiliency that they mm-hmm. tap into and really get to 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 use their community, even if it's not like a official or like structured resource, like a shelter or something or like a, a system, right? They are often working together with their communities to find the resources that each other needs needs and to support each other and so there is strength yeah. in having to navigate the like actual physical journey that you've had to take potentially that exposure to more sexual violence or domestic violence or, or just the risks for those things and and being in a place that often shows you a lot of like Hatred and having to navigate and like strive for a better a better future for yourself or for your children.
2: I think those community spaces are so important. Like Lauren, you mentioned the, the Puerto Rican community center, yeah. that, that you discovered when you moved here. And I know, uh, especially in Austin, there are several different organizations for different groups. And so it's it's yeah. And I think just that community involvement is so important, and those spaces are so so important and offer that sort of sanctuary and and place for gathering and to have those. Those familiar, not faces necessarily, but sometimes customs or or just sayings, or like we talked about, you know, for our new year's things and the things the foods we eat and stuff like that,
1: yeah. I think to your point, like in an In a past life, I used to work for, (laughs) we used to have this health and human services program in Texas called the Center for the Elimination of Disproportionality and Disparities. And it housed Mm -hmm. our Office of Minority Health. It was defunded back in 2017. So now we're like one of the only states that doesn't have an Office of Minority Health. But (laughs) that when I worked there, one of the things that we talked about a lot, people will look at like, oh, like chronic health conditions in like in Black and Latino communities in the United States and be like, it's because like those populations aren't as healthy right and then researchers have been like actually it's because living in kind of like a constant state of stress because of you know the way that this country is like uniquely racist right is <laughs> the thing that's that's creating you know it's it's driving people's like bodies to the brink right and like setting them up to 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 have like worse health outcomes it's creating chronic conditions right like if you can imagine just kind of like being like stressed out all the time like the impact on your heart right or if you're like not necessarily in a situation where you can always i mean you know even the way that our communities are set up, I think, kind of like has a lot to do with it as well. Right. Like if you live in a food desert, like yeah, like you're you're gonna have like kind of like chronic health conditions that somebody who lives in a town with like a farmer's market would not have. But but like what researchers have also found is that like in all these ways that racism can be like a predictor for like negative health outcomes, that recent immigrants to the United States don't have some of these chronic conditions because they like plug into these communities, right plug into these communities right away, and it turns out to be like a really, a really like resilient, protective thing, right? That like that, but then you know the sad thing is that then like the the first generation of kids born here starts to yeah, have to drop,
0: yeah, have to
1: and in the
2: states,
0: <laughs> it's it's that thing that so we have there's this image we use a lot in some of our presentations that social inequality leads to poor health, yes, which leads to social inequality, which leads to poor health. And all of those feed into a risk for violence. And so it's the cyclical thing that when in this country, our systems were specifically designed to create social inequality, um, which specifically results in poor health, which generates a greater risk for violence, which... It's this this cyclical thing. And so, and we know that for specifically for domestic violence, social support is a, a huge protective factor. So when you plug into those communities, when you have people who speak the language that you speak, who share the customs and cultures and foods and spaces and all of these things, like you create trust and you create communication and you create these protective factors to family violence. Yeah. So,
1: what you were saying also reminded me and it's yeah. like especially so that when we were talking about this earlier that I didn't think of it because you were like oh like why is economic justice important right particularly for survivors financial stress is like a big predictor like right like it's a driver of, of intimate partner violence yeah and so it's like oh like even from like the perspective of like when both partners are doing well financially that like reduces the likelihood that there's going to be um, that there's going to be intimate partner violence in that home.
0: Right. Yeah, when all of your other needs are met.
1: Yeah, some of these problems are really that we like, right, that we have like an insurance crisis and a mental health crisis <laughs> and yeah. a fair wage, kind of like an exploitable working class crisis. It's actually all these other things that like add up to like, and so I come home and like, I'm just like driven to the edge by by my partner asking me questions <laughs> about my day. <laughs> or yeah,
0: this, the stressors of everything else. And so kind of closing us
1: out. Cat- like, I'm like, I felt like we were having a good conversation in the background. Like, my cat's just like, I just, thought it was whatever. just being supportive.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yes, yes. Yeah. So,
1: thinking
0: about hopes and dreams, any hopes and dreams are related to economic justice, immigration, as before?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen with that bill. I would like to see it not be signed. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a great hope to have.
1: But I, I also think I just like, you know, there's there are so many people who like I think of who have like said this in different ways. And the one that I always come back to is like Gwendolyn Brooks. I'm not going to like get it perfect. This is an, an exact quote. She said something that's like the gist of like, we are each other's business, right? Like we are each other's magnitude and bond. And what she meant by that is like what happens to, and you know, we, I feel like we keep having these like situations where it's like, we should know this, right? Like COVID-19 was like a stunning example of like all of our health is bound up in each other's health, mm. right? But I, I really do think that like being radically more human Right? It's like being like really caring and, and having a lot of compassion about the people that, that we share the state with. That we share this country with, that we share this continent with, like (laughs) right. Everything that we're all doing has an impact. And like when when we make it less safe for any member of our community, we also implicate our own safety. Right. So if not, if not out of concern for each other, then like out of concern for yourself, right? That like even if it has to be selfishly motivated, knowing that you'll be safer when we have, you know, better public benefits that serve a wider population, when we have when our response to everything isn't calling the police who I was gonna get us like on another
2: (laughs) yeah yeah this could be a whole different episode
1: but but you know my hope and dream I think is broadly that we realize just how implicated we are in each other yeah great (laughs) thank you yeah. I started to be like, I'm losing the thread here. But No,
0: I think it's great. And I think that it's a great place to be in this New Year's episode, right? To to add to people's resolutions, to be kinder, to be more aware of how our lives are interconnected and like impacted by each other. So I think it's a great, I think it's a great note to end on. I think we'll add some of the resources that we did mention into the episode description. We'll also, because we're recording this several weeks, a month in advance if there is any updates on SB four, we might put those in the episode description and so so yeah lauren thank you so much
1: thank you guys for having me on i'm so sorry like i hope i didn't bum out any listeners but
0: <laughs> it's a heavy topic our podcast is often heavy topics so i, did, I, did.
2: I, I had fun it's good to have you on and, it, and yeah like william said we talk about heavy topics all the time and it is good information to also have out there Because, you know, a lot of a lot of folks don't don't hear about it otherwise, or they may not get the same perspective. So it is nice to have it on. It's great to have you on and talk to you about this. It was so good to talk to you guys.
0: Everybody, we wish you a Happy New Year. And so, bye. Thank you guys.
2: Bye.